Well, I, I have been um, reading in my uh, daily devotional time of, in 1 Samuel, and I came across this chapter 15 where <clears throat> Samuel comes to Saul and confronts him about his disobedience. And as I read through that, something that just really stood out to me was the contrast to Saul's response to Samuel and David's response to Nathan the prophet when he came to him um, and confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. And so I began looking at that and just thinking about it. And what, I've, what I came to see is that <clears throat> in both instances, that when the prophet came, there was a sorrow, some sort of a sorrow, a remorse at least, on Saul's part, asking for pardon. It was totally different with David. There was a, there was a sorrow and a brokenness over his sin. And uh, I hope that as we go through this today, you'll see that the, there's a difference between just kind of Sorry that you got caught in a, in a brokenness because you've sinned against God. And uh, so one is just the sorrow, I think, of the world, and the other is a sorrow, a godly sorrow, that leads to repentance. And so I want to pick up here, and I'm going, to kind of, I'm going through a lot of, um, not a lot of verses, but a lot of sec- three sections, and I have 30 minutes, and so I going to have to do some paraphrasing here. But if you look at uh, 1 Samuel 15, you have, uh, it says then, uh, verse 1, Then Samuel said to Saul, uh, <clears throat> The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek, for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man, woman, child, infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. <clears throat> so that was the command, the mission that Saul was to go on. <clears throat> and uh, he does. He goes out and he defeats Amalek. And then he comes back. And he <clears throat> approaches, or Saul, uh, Samuel approaches him in verse 13. And, and he came to Saul and said to him, Blessed, this is Saul speaking, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? So uh, uh, Saul comes and he says, Hey, I did what the Lord told me to do. Samuel says, If you did, why am I hearing these animals? Because the command was to utterly destroy them, not to spare and it, it dawned on me that in, in God's eyes, 
doing mostly what God's commanded you to do, mostly obeying God, is disobedience. That's what he's saying here. Partial obedience is disobedience. And that's what he's bringing out here. So then Samuel goes on and tells Saul, God has, you were little in your own eyes, and God brought you up in your littleness in your own eyes, and he made you a king, put you over all of this, this land and these people, put you in charge of my people, and he sent you on a mission. Why did you disobey? And that's what he brings out in verses 15 through 19. And then Saul, still holding on, I, I did obey. Look at verse 20. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. And I went on the mission which the Lord sent. And I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Yes, you utterly destroyed him except for Agag and except for these animals. He said, but now here comes the shifting of the blame. Verse 21, but the people took some of the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the choicest of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So now Saul takes and he shifts the blame. He says, I was, I was innocent in this. I did okay. It's these people. They're the ones. But Saul's the king. And uh, <clears throat> so he's wanting to shift this responsibility. Then he takes, and we have to be careful of this. He takes their, and, and justifies the disobedience of the people with religion, we, we save these animals to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. We save the best to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. We utterly destroyed the poor things, but the best. We've, so what he's doing is he's trying to put a little holy water on his disobedience. He's disobeyed God. And now he's trying to justify it with some religious activity, religious justification. So then the real issue comes up. Well, let me go this. And then Samuel tells him, and this is the in verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. So he's telling Saul, God desires your obedience, not your sacrifice. He desires your obedience to him. And uh, so it goes on, and then in verse 24, the the real issue comes up. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. So he finally admits it. He has sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. There's the issue. I feared the people and I listened to their voice instead of your voice, God. That's what what the issue was. He feared what the people would think. 
And you see it as you go through here. He, he's not really broken that he sinned against God. He feared the people. He was fearful of the people. And I got to thinking about that verse in Proverbs. It's Proverbs 29, 25. It says, the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Well, it brought a snare for, for Saul. The fear of man. And the Lord in John 5 says this. How can you believe? How can you believe um, <clears throat> when you receive glory from one another and not the glory, seek the glory from the one and only God? So what you have is that fear of man is tied to unbelief. You can't believe. You can't walk with God when you're fearing men more than you're fearing God. And that's what happened here with, with um, Saul. <clears throat> and then in verse 25, he says, Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. So he's asking for pardon. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But come back with me so we can go back together and worship the Lord. And you see why he's asking him to come back. If you look down in verse 30, he says, um, <clears throat> then he said, I have sinned. Well, Saul, first of all, Samuel says, I'm not going back with you to worship. And then he says, but please come back. I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. A couple of words here that please come back with me that, and honor me that I will be honored in front of the people. In other words, he's still at the root of this thing. He still wants the praise from the people. He wants the honor from the people. And he's not concerned about the honor of God. That's why I'm saying there is a sorrow, a, a, a worldly sorrow, but it's not leading to repentance. There was no repentance on Saul's part. There was probably some embarrassment, some shame, but there wasn't, he didn't see his sin against God. And uh, I just thought of three, quickly, three applications here, and I'm just going to list them. I've mentioned one of them. Partial obedience is disobedience. Secondly, the fear of man fosters unbelief and disobedience. The fear of man will foster that in your life. Unbelief and disobedience. <clears throat> and then sec thirdly, and this is what you see with him, religious activity will not make up for disobedience. Religious activity will not make up for disobedience. You need to obey God. And you need to, if you've sinned, you need to repent. And that's what I want to look at next is the situation with David. <clears throat> and this is in Second uh, Samuel chapter 12. And this one, I'm going to give you a little background. Most of you know it, but I'll, I'll just briefly summarize. Chapter 11 gives the whole, what, what happens to lead up to chapter 12. Chapter 11, verse 1, it says that uh, then it happened in the spring at the time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. But David stayed in Jerusalem. 
So that's the first thing David did wrong. He's supposed to be out leading the troops, and he stays back. Well, while he stays back, you know the story. He falls into to, uh, sin, commits sin. I won't say falls into it. He was purposeful in it. He commits the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And it's kind of done secretly, somewhat. And uh, he sends her back to her house and uh, thinks everything's fine. It's covered up. Except she sends him a note sometime later saying that she's pregnant. So now David's got to hatch a plan to cover himself. So what he does is he sends a note or a message out to Joab, who's leading the troops, and he asks for Joab to send Uriah back to Jerusalem. Now Uriah is Bathsheba's husband. So Uriah comes back, and David inquires, how's the battle going, and so on and so forth, and he gives the report. He says, you need to go spend some time at home, have a meal, spend some time with your wife. And uh, that was that. Next morning, David gets a report that Uriah didn't go home. He just stayed on the outside of the house, David's house, and slept with David's servants. And David questioned him about that the next day. And he said, how can I go home and, and relax and be with my wife when all the, the men of Israel are out fighting the enemy? He said, I can't do that. So David hatches plan B. Let's get him drunk, feed him, get him drunk, and then have him go back to spend some time with his wife. Doesn't work. Uriah stays at the footsteps of the, the door of David's house. So David sends calls for Uriah, and he, he writes a message to have it delivered to Joab. And the message is, <clears throat> put Uriah on the front lines in the most dangerous place, and when the enemy attack is the fiercest, pull back from him so he'll be killed. In other words, David orders a hit on her husband, Uriah, at the hands of the Ammonites. That's what was happening, and that's what the Lord held him accountable for. And so that happened. And then there was the period of mourning for his wife, Bathsheba. And right after, David says, okay, now I can kind of cover myself. I'm going to marry Bathsheba. And he does. And that's chapter 11. Now chapter 12 opens up. And Nathan, the prophet, gets a word from uh, the Lord and says, go tell this to um, <clears throat> David. So Nathan goes and he tells a story. He said there were these two men in this certain city and one was poor and he only had one lamb that was like a pet, that he loved this lamb. And there was another man that lived near him that had a whole herd of sheep. And there was a traveler coming through the uh, town and the rich man wanted to put a meal out for the traveler. So he steals the poor man's pet lamb, butchers it, and serves it for food for the traveler. Soon as David hears this, he is enraged. He says, he deserves to die. And he says he needs to restore fourfold what he took from that poor man. And then the famous verse in, in uh, verse 7, 
Nathan looks at him and says, David, you're the man. You're the man. It's amazing. <clears throat> David then, or Nathan then proceeds to tell David what's going to happen because of this sin. And he does a similar thing that he did with Saul. He says, you were nothing. You were nothing in your own sight. And I took you and made you king and placed you over all my kingdom, all these people of mine. And I provided everything for you. And if that wasn't enough, I would have provided more for you. But you've, you've sinned. Why have you sinned? And um, it's interesting to see. Uh, he tells him what the judgments are going to be on his house. And they were severe judgments. Um, Nathan says, this is what's going to happen because of your sin. A sword, the sword will not depart from your house. Evil will come from within your own house. He said, you took Bathsheba secretly, but I'm going to have your companion take all your wives publicly. In other words, you are going to be humiliated before the whole nation because you have sinned against me and you have, you've sinned against Bathsheba You've sinned against Uriah. You've sinned against the nation of Israel by disgracing the, the king of Israel, disgracing the leadership that was entrusted to him. You've sinned. <clears throat> well, look at David's response. Now, this is quite different. This is what I want you to get. In verse 13 <clears throat> of Second uh, Samuel 12, David's, then David said, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Now we said David had sinned against Uriah, he'd sinned against Bathsheba, sinned against the nation. But what was primarily on David's mind, he had sinned against God. God had done this for him and blessed him, and he had sinned against God. And the other thing I would notice is that as severe as this judgment was on David, he doesn't chafe at God's judgment for his sin. Now, it doesn't say much about that here. He just doesn't bring it up. But if you go over to Psalm 51, where David writes that psalm after being confronted with um, Nathan over this sin, you really get more of a picture of what was David was going through. And really, what you see in Psalm 51, that is true qualities of a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And so that's what I want to spend the rest of the time on here. We have about 10 minutes or so. And in Psalm 51, you really see David's heart, and you really see the heart of a, a Christian who has sinned and is broken before God. It doesn't come up a lot thereafter, uh, that discussion with Nathan, but it's like David gets alone and writes this psalm, and you can see what was going on in his heart. You can hear it and the pain that he was going through. <clears throat> and I, I can't, don't have time to read the whole psalm, obviously, but I want to hit some highlights 
that just accentuate this idea of the qualities of true godly repentance. These are true to some extent uh, for everybody, but especially, I believe, for the Christian. Verse 4, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And I mentioned that before. There's no blame shifting. There's nothing. He owns it. I have sinned against God. And uh, that's a, he doesn't blame the situation. I was just kind of in a weak spot and got tempted and so on. So and that doesn't do that. I sinned against God. Second thing, and I've mentioned this one also, a recognition that God is justified in whatever he does with me. When you're convicted of sin, you realize, I I, whatever God says is right. And that's what you see in the second part, half of verse 4. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And that is the case. When a person's convicted of their sin, God, God really gets a hold of them. They realize I'm undone. Whatever God wants to do with me is right. I know it's right. I deserve it. Thirdly, David came to a realization that he needed to be, and it comes out in all of this, honest before God. That's what God wants. A realization that I need to be honest with God about what's going on inside. I can try to cover it up on the outside, but I need to be honest what's going on in my heart, what's going on in my life. No cover-up. And uh, he, you see that in verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. You see the difference between David and Saul? Saul tried to, he didn't try to, he tried to shift the blame. And eventually, after Samuel keeps hammering him, he comes to the realization, okay, I've sinned, forgive me. But there isn't a brokenness. There isn't this sense of, I sinned against God, and whatever God declares is, is right. So realization that we need to be honest. God knows everything about us. He knows what our motives are when we don't know what our motives are. He knows everything. So as much as we can, we need to be honest. As much as we know, we need to be honest. Fourth thing. He has a plea to God to give him a clean heart. See, when a person's really broken, this is really true for a Christian. When a person is sinned and they're broken over their sin, they don't want to stay there. They, they, it's not enough just to say, Lord, thank you for forgiving me. That's not enough for the Christian. He wants a clean heart. He wants to go on with God. He doesn't want to stay in this position. And that's what you see in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And going along with that, you see... He has, a de- he has a desire. He has tasted of the sweetness 
of communion with God. But that's been broken because of a sin. There's this distance now because of the sin. And what David is asking is, God, don't cast me away from your presence. He wants that fellowship with God restored. And that's true for a Christian. It's not good enough just to say, I forgive you. You want that restored. It's kind of like someone comes to you or, and confesses something. You say, I forgive you. But there isn't, uh, there isn't communion. There isn't fe- there's still something in between. And it's different than when a person forgives you and you just embrace and there's no cloud in between. Well, see, that's what David's wanting here. He's wanting that. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. That's what he says in verse 12. And sustain me with a willing spirit. I was thinking of that sustaining me with a willing spirit. A lot of times, I can just speak in my own life, I have sinned and I have fallen back into the sin and I've tripped up and fallen back into the sin. Um, and it's, it's sometimes it's just very troublesome. And, and what you're, you're praying is, God, give me a willing spirit. Help me to be willing to not to just follow you in this. I thought of that song we sing and the verses that, that I was thinking about was this. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. You feel it. I've done this before. I don't want to do it again. Lord, help me. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart. Take and seal it from thy courts above. Well, this is what he's saying here. This is what David is saying. Restore to me. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Restore the joy. And part of the reason that we want that clear air is we want to tell people. We want to sing praises to God. We want to tell people about how good God is. And that's what he goes on to say here. He says, O God, uh, verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully Joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. So that's what we want to do. We want, the Christian wants to be restored so that he can once again enter in to that time of just sweet communion with God, singing God's praises, testifying to others what great things God has done for you, like that gathering. Just testifying what God has done for you. He's been great to you. And um, <clears throat> then David kind of closes this section out. You remember with Saul, they wanted to take these animals and offer their sacrifices. And David ends it with this. He says, this is the sacrifice of God. Look at it in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, that's what's pleasing. That's the sacrifice that's pleasing to God. When a person sins, they they own it. They cry out to God for for forgiveness. They ask God to change them. They're broken. 
that are broken and contrite. And you think of that verse in Isaiah 66 where the Lord says, To this one will I look, to him who is humble and contrite and trembles at the word of God. That's the people God looks to. And that's what David is He's demonstrating this in his, this prayer that he wrote, this psalm. But then he says one other thing that really caught my attention. I don't know that I've really seen it before at the last two verses. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. And it just and he goes on to say, in burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, the young bulls and the will be offered on your altar. In other words, it wasn't that the offerings were detestable because they were of the animals, but it was because the offerings were done with a disobedient heart. That's what was detestable to God. And what he's saying is, restore this, restore me, so that I can offer a sacrifices that are acceptable. And I got to thinking, in Hebrews 13, it lists four types of sacrifices. Now, we don't offer bulls and rams and stuff, but we do offer these sacrifices of praise, sacrifice of praise, and it says this in in Hebrews 13. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips, that giving, that give thanks to God for his name, do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. That God is pleased with those when the heart is right with God. You're not hiding sin, you're not trying to cover sin up, you're not shifting blame, you come clean with God and you're truthful with God. And when you offer up then these songs that we sing of praise or testimonies of giving thanks for what God has done or sharing with others, giving and sharing and serving others, doing good, those things are pleasing to God and well accepted when offered with a right heart, a willing spirit. They're a sweet aroma in God's nostrils. All these things that we do are a sweet aroma, but they're not if we're trying to use it as a religious cover-up for our disobedience. See, that doesn't cut it with God. So may God help us to have tender hearts that when he speaks to us, we would be quick to repent and seek him and restore that fellowship so that when we do sing these praises, they are a sweet aroma to God. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this word, and thank you for this example of David and this wonderful psalm. It just reveals so much of the things that are pleasing to you, and we ask that you'd make us tenderhearted, that we would be really sensitive in our hearts about sin in our own lives, and uh, if there is, that we would be quick to call it what it is and not to shift blame or justify it, but to repent of it and be restored to you so that we would be able to sing your praises with all of our heart. 
and help us the rest of this day, Lord, as we enter into this time of worship and song later to be able to do that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.